So let's cultivate our motivation. This morning it was uh, very beautiful outside, quite sunny, and uh, a very beautiful blue spring sky that we get here. And for a few minutes, you know, seeing the sky and the bright sun, I had the same feeling that I did after I came back from surgery on my hip, this feeling of uh, being the recipient of so much kindness in the world and seeing kindness uh, where I hadn't seen it before. And I think this is one of our difficulties in life, is that we take kindness for granted, so we don't see it when it's there. It just blends into the fabric of our lives. But when we really start paying attention to it, then we see it in so many places. And that awareness of the kindness of sentient beings, when we really have that awareness a lot, it completely changes our mood and our way of looking at life. So you may say, well, that's nice, but when you look at the news, there's all this harm going around. And I remember when His Holiness spoke in Seattle, maybe 25, 30 years ago, and he was talking to the press during the public uh, um, talk, and he commented that they only talk about the negative things. And he said, you know, in this city, how many people are benefited by every other people today? But that doesn't get printed in the paper. Teachers are teaching kids. Parents are taking care of their families. You know, doctors and nurses are, are helping people. You know, people in grocery stores are stocking the shelves. And he said, but we never print that in the paper. We only print what is unusual, which is the harm. So I've always wondered how the uh, reporters at that talk took that, because harm sells more newspapers and gets more people to advertise online and kindness we take for granted. So why do we want to hear more about harm than we do about kindness? Now, as those consuming the news or periodicals, magazines, and so forth, what is so exciting about harm. 
and so boring about kindness when what all of us want is to experience kindness and then to be able to open our hearts and give kindness. So try and keep your mindfulness of kindness uh, very strong in your mind. Don't let the mind stray from that. And see how it affects you. And see how much easier it then becomes to generate bodhicitta, wanting to be of benefit to all these beings that have been kind to us. And wanting to benefit them not by just worldly, mundane kindness, but by being able to lead them in the path which will really obliterate their misery. So generate that now. So to, today, I think it was, or maybe it was yesterday, is the one-year anniversary of when uh, the World Health Organization declared COVID as a pandemic. And so people, you know, are talking about how much they've suffered um, through being, you know, their activities being limited during the year and not being able to do what they like and feeling lonely and feeling despair and and so on. And I think that, you know, when we put our mind on the kindness of sentient beings, uh, even, you know, you can't go out to dinner with them like you usually do. You don't feel lonely. Yeah, when you really think of the kindness and when you think of how you depend on other sentient beings just to stay alive, then, you know, the loneliness, the frustration, all of that, uh, where's, where's there room for it? Mm -hmm. So I think this meditation is actually quite important and quite a good remedy to the kind of depression and so on that people have experienced during the, this last year. And it also makes us ask, you know, if people are depressed and they want to do their usual activities, you know, going out, dancing, going to the theater and the movies and uh, the sports games. Oh, they're so excited that some team is going to... In, in Texas, of course, um, they're going to have 80,000 people in in the upcoming game in, you know, in a few weeks. And people are so excited. 
And, you know, why are those things exciting? And why do they bring happiness? Whereas sitting and thinking about how other beings have been kind to you, you know, we don't even want to do. I mean, if we think about the, the kindness of specific people that we are infatuated with, that we think are, you know, over-the-top wonderful because they think we're over-the-top wonderful, then that's okay. That'll make us happy. Yeah, that contemplation. Yeah. But just thinking about the kindness of, uh, you know, the everyday people that we interact with. So why is going to a basketball game more fun than that. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Don't you think it's interesting? What we choose to think uh, livens our spirits. So anyway, there it is. Consider it. Okay. So, we're still in the chapter, the last chapter about karma, page 311. And so, at the end of last week, um, we were talking about secular ethics a little bit and how His Holiness has been really big about promoting that. In other words, ethics that would apply for everybody, whether no matter what their religion is, and also for non-believers. Okay, so uh, you know he t- he's written a, f- a couple of books about that, and it's been quite important. And I think it if um, it's very helpful if people read that. Yeah, do people remember the the names? Was it Ethics for a New Millennium? Yeah, and then beyond religion. Yeah, we'll start at the top of page three eleven. Needless to say, someone who gives a gift to bribe another person is not practicing generosity. Okay. Similarly, harming one living being in order to give to another is not the practice of generosity, nor is giving weapons the practice of generosity. So that's what we closed with last time saying that generosity isn't just a thing of giving something. There's all these, uh, when we really get into it and study, there's, you know, what is a proper thing to give? When is a proper time to give it? Who is it proper to give to? How is it proper to give? Okay? So it isn't just, you know, here, take this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But His Holiness... uh, it talks about how generosity is uh, something that is all people uh, respect generosity. All people like it. All people see that it's something good, you know, because it really brings people together, and it shows us how uh, how much alike we are that we use the same things. You know, we all eat food and and so on. Yeah. In the early years of the Communist Party in China, some of its members had a real sense of altruism 
and dedicated their entire lives to improving the welfare of the peasants and the poor. This was virtuous. And when His Holiness first went to Beijing in 1956, and that was the first time he met Mao, and he you know, heard all about communism and, and its ideals, he really liked it. You know, it sounds so wonderful. And he was very impressed. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, okay, yeah, they were biased and with hatred destroyed the lives and possessions of the educated and the wealthy. Okay, so here's the hang up. Yeah, we may have a sense of altruism, but when it doesn't apply equally to everybody, yeah, then there's difficulties because, you know, you become biased, you uh, hate, though, you know, a certain group of people, you favor another group of people, and so you try and help the ones you like and harm the ones you don't like, and your feeling of altruism kind of disappears. Yeah, and that's uh, kind of what happened with communism, both in Russia and in China. Yeah. I remember being in high school and there being a big debate, and I was on the side, uh, you know, think, kind of talking about the benefits of Chinese communism. And uh, because in that time, uh, you know, we didn't, let's see, when was that? It was high school? So the, the, uh, the Cultural Revolution had, had started, but we didn't have any news about it, you know. Nobody knew what was going on in China then. And uh, all we heard was, you know, the beautiful things. So I remember advocating so much for that. And then, of course, years later finding out what actually what was going on in China with the Cultural Revolution, which was really, really horrible for people. Um, these communist officials had two contradictory emotions, compassion for the poor and animosity towards the rich. Yeah, there's people in America today who feel that way. Yeah, just jealous of the rich, hating the rich, feeling, you know, compassion for the poor. And then there's other people in America today who think the poor are lazy and just throw them away, and they think the rich are fantastic because they're, they're, they've been successful according to the American dream. So both parties are suffering from bias. Yeah. So you can see why uh, equanimity comes first, you know, before either of the two methods for cultivating bodhicitta. Yeah, first is equanimity. Okay, uh, these mutually opposed emotional states constitute two separate mental states. One motivates virtuous activities, the other non-virtuous actions. They create different karma depending on which mental state motivates uh, someone to act at a particular time and what action they do. Such situations are not unique to communist officials. We see this happen quite often in our own lives as well. 
Yeah. So if you're teaching, if you're a teacher, you know, you may favor some students and not others. Okay, so some teachers favor the smart students, some teachers favor the slow learners. Yeah. Some people, some teachers ignore the kids who act out. Some teachers pay more attention to the kids who act out. Yeah. So, but the thing is, and you may have to do that. Equanimity doesn't mean you treat everybody the same, but it does mean that in your heart you have equal care and concern for, for everybody. Okay, so we need to practice that with the four cats. Yeah. Do you, do you have equanimity towards the four cats? No? no there's ones that you like more, huh? <laughs> and ones that you're a little bit hesitant about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so even, you know, regarding cats, we have a hard time practicing equanimity let alone with human beings. Okay, and the next section is the complexity of, of karma. All this talk about communism, I just want to make a comment here, is, um, you know, now in the country there's uh, people who are saying, oh, you know, this certain party, they're all socialists, and, you know, the radical left socialists. And... I'm very curious, um, you know, to ask, first of all, what does radical mean? Yeah, uh, what is radical left? And what does socialism mean to these people? I mean, clearly, radical left socialism to some people means you're horrible. You're a horrible person who's going to destroy the country. But I'm curious if, if they know what, what does radical mean? What does left mean to them? And what does socialist mean? Do they understand what, what socialism is? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting how, uh, you know, we always find names to call other people. So, you know, what do the people call the right? Kind of the uh, oh the neo Nazi uh, the, far -right the far right extremists yeah yeah so yeah so what is far right <laughs> yeah and what's an extremist what makes somebody an extremist and what's the difference between a far right extremist and a radical left extremist. <laughs> Yeah, this is quite interesting when you think about it. We so easily uh, call people names and make up slogans for certain people. But if somebody asked us, what does that name actually mean? Yeah, can, can we say? Yeah. Okay, the complexities of karma. So some accounts of karmic events are puzzling. Yeah, so we hear lots of different uh, stories about karma in the scriptures, okay? 
So, for example, Shantideva relates the story of Shariputra relinquishing Bodhicitta. Shariputra was a bodhisattva on the path of accumulation. Actually, in the Pali scriptures, he was an arhat. Um, but in this story, he's still on the path of accumulation. So maybe it was before he became an arhat. But his, uh, So he was a, a bodhisattva on the path of accumulation whose bodhicitta was not stable. Once, another person returned Shariputra's generosity with ingratitude, provoking Shariputra to give up bodhicitta. So I can't remember if I'm mixing up stories here. But between Aryadeva and Aryadeva, they asked for his eye, right? So then Shariputra, somebody asked for his hand. So he cut, cut off his uh, right hand. Yeah. And, and so he gave it to the guy who asked for it, but he gave it with his left hand. And in Indian culture, your left hand is the hand you use to clean yourself after you go to the toilet. So the other guy was very offended. You know, how dare you give me your hand with your dirty hand, you know, and threw it away, and uh, Shariputra just went, yeah, I was only trying to help, give you what you want. Uh, and he just got so discouraged, and he thought, oh, these sentient beings, they're help hopeless, you know. So he relinquished his bodhicitta. So scriptures say that after generating bodhicitta, if someone relinquishes it, he is born as a hell being. So we've been going through that section. Yeah. Uh, yet Shariputra achieved arhatship in that life. So how can this be explained? Shantideva responds by saying that the complex workings of karma are beyond our understanding. Only the Buddha's wisdom comprehends it fully. Okay, so I'm not the only one who says that one. I don't know what's going on. Okay, Shantideva said it too. And, you know, this comes out again and again. What's interesting is um, uh, Achan Mun, if any of you have ever read uh, Achan Mun's biography or any of the stories of uh, that, you know, Achan Mun and his lineage, uh, in Thailand of Theravada um, monastics. He lived 19th century, I think, maybe early 20th. At, yeah. And he was uh, renowned as an incredible meditator and, and as an arhat. But he tells a story that um, I think it was in a previous life. He was... Um, you know, he was practicing bodhicitta, and then he had a, an, a realization in his uh, meditation that by practicing bodhicitta, he wouldn't attain arhatship. So I don't know if it was a previous life or it was this life. Anybody remember? Huh? Previous life, okay. Uh, thank you for reading what I wrote. <laughs> you can show how much I remember what I wrote. Um, so, yeah, so he gave up his bodhicitta and he became an arhat. So that's another example, because usually they say if you give up your bodhicitta, you are born in the hell realms. 
okay? But he wasn't, and he became an arhat. So, okay. So, these karmic things that are very difficult to explain. Another story says that Nagarjuna died from decapitation as a result of karma he created in a previous life when he accidentally cut off the head of an ant with a scythe. Okay, so in a previous life he was cutting grass. He didn't see the ant, but he actually cut off the head of the ant in a previous life, and that is supposedly how he died in his life as Nagarjuna, that he was decapitated. Okay, so explaining, um, this, I asked His Holiness about this story. So this is what he said. Explaining this uh, story in the context of the general Buddhist understanding of karma is difficult. Considering that one sutra says that Nagarjuna was a highly realized bodhisattva, I think he was reputedly seventh bhumi. Okay. So he was renowned as a great practitioner and a teacher of the Gaya Samaja Tantra. And in Ocean of Reasoning, Tsongkhapa spoke of him having fully developed bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness. If such an outstanding person as Nagarjuna with these magnificent qualities was unable to achieve Buddhahood, in a single lifetime, then the teaching in the Gya Samaja Tantra that awakening in a single lifetime is possible must be a fairy tale. Okay. In this light, we see that the story about him being decapitated because of having inadvertently killed an ant cannot be taken in a literal or ordinary way. So there's lots of stories like that, that um, really, if, if you just think about them, you know, applying reasoning and so forth, you, you can't make a lot of sense out of them. Um, yeah, the, the one that I, I think of especially is the one about the, the uh, monastics who went to do puja at somebody's house, and it's customary that you offer them food when they do puja. But the owner of the house who had requested the puja had sold some scriptures, and he used the money from selling the scriptures to buy the food that he fed to the monks. Of course, the monks knew nothing about this, but because they ate the, the food that was, you know, uh, bought by polluted money, you know, wrong livelihood, uh, then they got sick. So that story's always puzzled me. They got violently ill out of, after eating that lunch. And, you know, it doesn't, because they didn't know that the money uh, came from selling scriptures. You know, I can understand why you know, doing a business, selling Dharma things with a mind that just wants to make a profit, you know, that's that's not so good. You're, then you're selling Dharma things like you're selling used cars just to get some money. But why 
would it make people who didn't even know where the money came from, and they didn't eat the money, they ate the food that was bought by the money, why would it make them sick? And, you know, and then why do teachers nowadays have their students set up Dharma publishing companies and, and they get paid from the, the company that's selling the Dharma books? So uh, this is karma that is beyond my comprehension. <laughs> okay? It's the only thing I can say about it. You know, the story is very, very puzzling to me. Yeah. Cannot be taken in a literal or ordinary way. So something else must have been a factor in all of this. In the sublime continuum, Maitreya said that the Buddha, while not wavering from absorption in emptiness, appears in diverse emanations. From this perspective, Shakyamuni Buddha was an emanation body. Emanation bodies come from the enjoyment body, and this, in turn, is a manifestation of the truth body. So the emanation body uh, is the bodies of the, well, it's actually the person who has a body that uh, appears to ordinary living beings that ordinary living beings can relate to, like uh you know, Shakyamuni Buddha. The, um, the enjoyment body, or sometimes called the resource body, is the, uh, the aspect that the Buddha appears in to teach uh, Arya Bodhisattvas in the Pure Land. Okay, so that's a, a close teaching. Yeah. <laughs> and then the truth body is the... Uh, has two parts. One is the wisdom of the Buddha, and the other is the emptiness of the mind and the true cessation of a of a Buddha's mind. Okay, so His Holiness is starting off. You have, you know, somebody like Guru Sakyamuni Buddha, who came, who's an emanation body, who came from the enjoyment body, and those two, they're called bodies. It doesn't refer to this body. It refers to like a, a corpus or a body of knowledge, both the emanation body and the and the uh, enjoyment bodies are actually people; they're persons. Okay, but both of them come from the truth body, from the Dharmakaya. Okay, so therefore, the so His Holiness is saying, therefore, the Buddha was awakened before he appeared in our world in the form of the prince from Kapilavastu. All the activities and events in his life were in fact demonstrations done intentionally to teach us. From this perspective, it could be that Nagarjuna was already a Buddha and the story of his death was a demonstration done to teach us. You know, what could it have been teaching us? That karma is very sensitive. And, you know, uh, be very careful about small actions. Don't just kind of ignore them. Okay, the law of, uh, yeah, so from that perspective, yeah, you know, they, they appear in different ways. And we may not understand their actions, but they're for the benefit of somebody. It may not be us, but 
somebody who is, is knowing about that. So the law of karma and its effects is very subtle and its intricacies are beyond our understanding. Only an omniscient Buddha is able to know these fully. Since the Buddha is not present here and now, we cannot ask him for clarification regarding the subtle aspects of karma. <laughs> okay, it'd be nice to ask him that question, yeah? See what he says. So Buddha Gosa, who was the, uh, the very well-known um, Pali scholar and practitioner, lived in 5th century, he, uh, he said, the succession of karma and its result is clear in its true nature, only to the Buddha's knowledge of karma and its result, which knowledge is not shared by disciples. Okay, so when you're a Buddha and all your obscurations to knowing all objects are eliminated, then you can see the very uh, minute and subtle details of karma, like we're all sitting here in this room right now. So what did we do as individuals? What did we do as a group? So that we're all sitting here right now. And why is it that somebody who would usually be sitting here with us is not here? You know, they created some different karma. So exactly you know, what we did, what they did, all these kinds of things are the, the subtle in intricacies of karma that only a Buddha can know. And Vasubandhu agrees with what uh, Buddha Gosa said. So he said, nobody but the Buddha understands in its entirety karma, its infusion, its activity, and the fruit that is obtained. So infusion, how it is planted on the mind you know, on the mind stream. So we say, you know, the karmic seed, the karmic potential was infused in the mind. There's a seed on the mind. And we go, what does that mean? Yeah. Because as soon as we hear seed, we think of something physical as if the karmic action it has now transformed into something like an acorn or maybe a sesame seed. Maybe they've got to be small seeds because we have so many of them and they all got to fit in the mind stream. Um, you know, and we, we, we hear words like this and we concretize them and then we don't know, you know, how does that work? When discussing karma and how it ripens and the number of complications, uh, oh, when discussing karma and how it ripens, the number of complications is enormous. Unfortunately, my head is too small for this vast expanse of knowledge. Now I see the truth in Milarepa's statement. Here's what Milarepa said. I don't know about the complex issue of Parchin, which um, Parchin uh, means the perfections, or literally translating, it means to cross to the other shore. And it's what explains the Bodhisattva's six perfections. It's the perfection of wisdom sutras. Yeah. So I don't know about the complex issues of Parjan, but if you can move from samsara to nirvana, then you have indeed gone to the other shore. 
Okay. So Milarepa was always very good when people got very puffed up about their knowledge and, you know, oh, I know about Parchin and there's, you know, 10 far-reaching attitudes and this one has so many branches and that one has so many branches and here's how you trace how they're described in this sutra and that sutra. And so Milarepa, you know, when people came to see him and they were very pompous and arrogant about their knowledge, then he would shoot them down with something like that. Yeah. It's great, isn't it? I don't know about the complex issues of Parchin, but if you can move from samsara to nirvana, then you have indeed gone to the other shore. I don't know about the complications of Vinaya. Vinaya, uh, dulwa, means taming, like taming the body, speech, and mind. And it refers to monastic uh, precepts and rites. So I don't know about the complications of Vinaya, but if this very crude mind of yours is tamed, then this is Vinaya. Okay. So again, Vinaya, oh my goodness. You, when you get into studying it, there's so many intricate details, you know, about what constitutes an offense and what are the exceptions and different degrees of offense and so on. Okay. Then the next heading, the next section is called Creating the Causes for Higher Rebirth, Liberation, and Awakening. So Nagarjuna sets out the aims of the spiritual path. So this is from our favorite, the precious garland, which His Holiness mentioned last night in this talk. So uh, that disciple first practices the dharma of higher rebirth, afterward comes the highest good. Because having obtained higher rebirth, one proceeds in stages to the highest good. Here we maintain that higher rebirth is happiness, and highest good is liberation. In brief, the method for attaining them is summarized as faith and wisdom. There's a lot in this verse, these two verses, a lot. Okay, so here he's describing how uh, somebody is led on the path. So first they do the practices of the Dharma that lead to higher rebirth. Yeah, so that you, um, you know, they can have a good rebirth in the future. Why do people strive for higher rebirth as the first goal you know, in the Dharma, because in order to reach liberation or full awakening, you need a succession of upper rebirths to practice because you need to, you know, uh, create a lot of merit and a lot of, you know, the two collections have merit and wisdom. It takes a long time to do this, so you need to make sure that you have that time in a good rebirth, uh, and so you practice to attain the higher rebirth. And the chief cause for the higher rebirth, okay, is ethical conduct. And for a precious human rebirth, which is not just a higher rebirth, it's ethical conduct, uh, practicing the six perfections, and also making dedication prayers to have that kind of life. Okay, so that after, after someone kind of practices that, those things. Then um, 
you know, the high, they, they've learned about the highest good beforehand, but now they, then they really try and emphasize the highest good in their own practice. Okay, so the highest good refers to liberation and full awakening. Okay, and why do you do it in that order? Because having obtained the higher rebirth, then the next thing you go on to is more difficult, and so that's the highest good, and you do what's easy first, okay? So um, then in the second verse here, he's defining, so higher rebirth is happiness, means having a fortunate rebirth, and highest good is liberation and also full awakening. Okay, and then the method for attaining them is summarized as faith and wisdom. So how do you gain a, an upper rebirth? Faith. How do you gain uh, liberation, wisdom? You're going to say, but generating faith, the kind of faith His Holiness wants us to have, that's hard. Yeah, He tells us not to have blind faith. Yeah, he tells us to question things. So, you know, why is it in that order? Because here faith means, doesn't mean blind faith, it means having confidence in the functioning of the law of karma and its effects, okay? Because in order to have a higher rebirth, you have to really understand causality. And among all the different kinds of causality, karma, karmic causality is the most important to understand for you know, at the beginning for a spiritual practitioner. Because if we understand karmic causality, then we can abandon the negativity that throws us to the lower realms and practice the virtue that leads to a good rebirth. Okay? And then wisdom is the main thing for uh, attaining um, liberation and awakening. It isn't the only thing Okay, but it's the thing that actually enables us to eliminate first the afflictive obscurations from the mind and attain liberation, and then eliminate the uh, cognitive obscurations and attain uh, full awakening. Okay, so then His, His Holiness asks, can people who are not Buddhist create constructive karma for higher rebirth and the highest good of liberation and awakening. For an action to become the cause for upper rebirth, it is not necessary that the person doing that action have the motivation to attain that state. Okay, then in fact, they don't even have to believe in upper rebirth. You know, they're doing, they're keeping ethical conduct, and that's, that's good. But for an action to become a cause for the ultimate spiritual aims of liberation and awakening, the person must have the intention to attain these states. Okay. Now, why is that? Why don't you need the uh, intention to create the cause for an upper rebirth, and you do need the intention for creating the cause for... Um, for liberation or awakening. Why? Why is it like that? Why isn't, aren't they both the same? Anybody have ideas? I think one is more samsara and the other one is 
kind of veering off of the the loop that we're already in. Yeah. So wishing for a, a higher rebirth is you're still in samsara. Yeah. Liberation and awakening. You know, you kind of to uh, when you think about it, ordinary people, um, you know, if they believe in in a future life. If you think about, you know, non-Buddhist religions, some believe in, in rebirth, some believe in heaven and hell, some kind of forever kind of rebirth. Um, you know, and these people can still create virtue by keeping ethical conduct because ethical conduct is taught in other faiths and other religions. And it's also... You know, like His Holiness says, with secular ethics, it's something that that everybody in society, whether they have a religion or not, um, thinks. You know, not killing, not stealing, not lying—all these kinds of things—that that's that's good. So everybody can create those kind of actions. You know, that that lead to an upper rebirth. You don't have to know about Buddhism and things like that, but. To attain liberation or awakening, yeah, you have to generate the mind, the wisdom realizing emptiness. Now, do all other uh, religions teach that? Yeah, no, not exactly. Yeah, and can you figure out the wisdom realizing emptiness by yourself, without a teacher, without anybody kind of doing anything? So you're going to say, well, the Buddha did it, so why can't I? Yeah, maybe, you know, I'm, maybe I'm already a lower-level bodhisattva like the Buddha was when he was born, and, you know, I'm going to figure out emptiness and attain awakening, you know, not under a bodhi tree. I'll sit one of, under, you know, one of the uh, spruce trees. <laughs> Or maybe a white pine or a red pine, you know, kind of make a, a north a northwest USA awakening, you know. Um, well, you know, emptiness isn't something that ordinary people that would just pop into somebody's mind that they would figure out. Yeah, in fact, uh, our minds have a lot of resistance towards learning about emptiness. Yeah, I was uh, just reading something today where um, from some of the interviews I did in Dharamsala, uh, one Geshe was saying, you know, if you're meditating on emptiness and it seems real easy to you, is it because you have an enormous amount of merit and so you don't feel afraid? Or is it because you haven't identified the object of negation correctly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So realizing emptiness is a bit harder. We need teachers. The, and so this is one of the reasons why we say that the Buddha already uh, was awakened when he was born in this life because he attained awakening in a previous life. Okay, so somebody must have the intention to attain liberation and awakening in order to attain it. 
Chandakirti says that ethical conduct is a cause for higher rebirth, liberation, and full awakening. Okay, so if you don't know what to practice, you know, but you want all those results, start with ethical conduct. It works for all of them, okay? So uh, Majamika Avatara says, uh, for common beings who's bo- who those born from the world, from the word, in other words, shravakas, uh, uh, the term shravaka is uh, usually translated as hearers, so born from the word because they hear the Buddhist teachings in words and then they teach it to other people. Okay, so for common beings, those born from the word, those set towards solitary awakening, in other words, the solitary realizers, and those conquerors' heirs, the bodhisattvas, a cause of the highest good and higher rebirth is none other than proper ethical conduct. Yeah, so sometimes you meet people who are practicing dharma who poo-poo ethical conduct and just say, you know, that's like Sunday school and, you know, just, yeah, just be a, be a, be a good person, you know. But, of course, be a good person means, you know, do what you want to get what you want. <laughs> okay. Sankapa comments in Illuminating the Thought, a commentary to Chandrakirti's supplement, that this does not exclude other virtuous actions from being causes of higher rebirth and highest good. Okay, because somebody might think, oh, Chandrakirti said, you know, the cause of higher, uh, highest good and higher rebirth is none other than proper ethical conduct. They may say, oh, well, all we need is ethical conduct. Yeah, and so uh, Sankapa clarified, no, that's not all you need. Okay, so you need renunciation, you need the aspiration for liberation, you need to collect all sorts of other uh, virtue, and so on. Okay, so here's what Tsongkhapa said. There are, however, many other... Did I turn the pages right? Yeah. There are, however, many other causes that are not ethical conduct. This... uh, Thus, this means that to achieve special higher states and the highest good, a definitive, definite relation with ethical conduct is necessary. Okay, so uh, special higher states, so it could be a special human, uh, you know, precious human rebirth or maybe uh, former formless realms. He doesn't spell it out here. So a definite um, relation with ethical conduct is necessary. If ethical conduct is forsaken, there is no way that these can be accomplished. But So ethical conduct is a, a necessary but not sufficient element. There are three causes for precious human life. One, observance of pure ethical conduct entails at the least avoiding the ten destructive paths of action and practicing the ten constructive ones. It is the projecting cause that makes us uh, take rebirth as a human being. 
Okay, so projecting cause is the one that projects the life. Okay, it's the second link in dependent arising. Then two, the cultivation of other virtuous qualities is the practice of generosity, fortitude, meditation, and so on. It brings conducive circumstances for Dharma practice. So done with proper motivation, generosity is the cause for wealth, and we need some wealth. It doesn't mean rich. It just means having resources. You need food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. Okay, so you obtain that through practicing generosity. Ethical conduct brings good health, long life, and good relationships. So when you're practicing Dharma in the future lives, you want to have a good relationship with your spiritual mentor and your Dharma uh, brothers and sisters. Fortitude produces an attractive appearance. And you might say, why is something that isn't that pretty samsaric? Why should I try and get an at attractive appearance? You know, I really, you know, what good does looking like Beyonce or Rambo get me towards awakening, you know? And uh, it isn't to have an attractive appearance for the sake of having an attractive appearance. It's because if you have an unattractive appearance, people kind of are, are hesitant to be with you. So it makes it more difficult, you know, to be with, with Dharma communities. If you want to teach, it makes it more difficult to teach, okay? Whereas if you have an attractive appearance, it doesn't mean that you're gorgeous. Because if you're gorgeous, then that can create a problem in and of itself. Because then people, instead of respecting you for being a Dharma teacher, are, you know, batting their eyes at you, which is not what you want. Okay. <laughs> Joyous effort enables us to be able to attain our goals. So by finishing what we start out to do in this life, then we create the causes to finish and accomplish our, our goals in future lives. Concentration maintains our positive motivation. So, you know, if we cultivate bodhicitta or whatever other positive motivation, if we practice concentration, then we can hold that, that motivation steady, which is very helpful for future lives. And wisdom enables us to choose qualified spiritual mentors and understand the Dharma correctly. We can see the importance of that. And then the third cause of a precious human life, powerful dedication prayers direct our constructive karma to ripen in a precious human life. Okay, so we, we dedicate specifically for that. That doesn't mean we don't dedicate for liberation and awakening. We do, but we make sh sure if you dedicate for the higher aims, you automatically get a precious human life, okay? But it's still good to dedicate for precious human life, you know, because you need to plant it in your, in, in your own mind stream so that at the time of death, you know, this is what you're, you're generating an aspiration for. Yeah. I was once uh, with a friend and we were driving somewhere and this friend loves dogs. 
you know? And there was some dog that ran by, and she said, wow, what a good-looking dog. And my thing was, I felt, I didn't say to her, I said, don't think like that, you know? If you think like that, you're putting energy in your, in your own mind to for that to be born as a good-looking dog, because that's what you're admiring, yeah? But, um, you know, who wants to be a good-looking dog? <laughs> Any volunteers? <laughs> okay. So having these good circumstances in future lives will enable us to continue on the path to awakening with ease. Planting the karmic seeds to have them is done in this life. So that's why it's important to practice now. Says, my family raised cattle and butchered, so is their, their karma really negative? To be a, 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 a butcher, to raise cows and then butcher them, yeah, it's, it creates a lot of negative karma. But the one good quality of negative karma is it can be purified. Yeah. If Shakyamuni Buddha did not attain awakening in that life, is there a story of the person in his mind stream who became Buddha in that particular life? I, I didn't understand the question. If 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 Shakyamuni didn't Buddha didn't uh, obtain enlightenment in this life, is there the story of who he was in the previous life? Yeah, there's there's stories about it. Yeah, um, yeah, I can't remember all of them, but there, yeah, there are definitely stories about who he who he was, and there's stories about when he attained bodhicitta. Okay. <laughs> 